Take your Bible, if you would, please, this morning, and I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, is where I want to direct your attention. I'm going to read this morning from verse uh, 7 through, uh, I think, the end of the chapter, through verse 16. Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, starting in verse, I'm going to find it here myself, 7. If you can't find it like I couldn't, it's after the book of Proverbs, uh, in, in the Old Testament, about halfway through your Bible somewhere, this little book. If you're in Isaiah or Jeremiah, turn left. If you're in Psalms, turn right, and you'll come to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And I'm going to read from the scriptures. Follow along as I do. Again, the teacher writes, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. It's a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I'll pause here for a minute. We'll talk about this. This is a very difficult paragraph to translate. So if your translation is different than mine, you'll understand. This is this challenging Hebrew. We'll come to it in a little bit. Verse 15. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before him. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I imagine you already know what this sermon is going to be about. Today we're going to talk about community. Uh, This is one of the most well-known passages in the book of Ecclesiastes. You may have heard it read recently at a wedding, and and the, the message is very simple. Human beings need community. In the world that God made, human beings need community. And the teacher wants you to, to remind you uh, in this passage, he wants you to read it, and he wants you to commit yourself again to pursuing community. This is one of dozens of passages like it in the Bible that make this argument. Why does the Bible, why does the Bible spend so much time encouraging us to uh, unite with others who share our faith? Why does God tell this to us over and over and over again? You would think we would know this, right? Um, Every social study that's ever been done and your own experience will tell you that life is better when you enjoy it with friends. Uh, Human beings who have healthy relationships live longer, are more prosperous, they experience less mental illness, they enjoy more successful careers, they have better health, they report general overall well-being. According to every single metric of human flourishing, you are better off in a community than you are alone. Ten years ago, Wired Magazine did an article about AA. 
Alcoholics Anonymous. It was 10 years ago, the 75th anniversary of that organization. So for 75 years, now almost 85 years, AA has been helping people recover from alcohol addiction. And here's how the article, that article began. Despite all we've learned over the past few decades about psychology, neurology, and human behavior, contemporary medicine has yet to devise anything that works markedly better. Why is that? Why does AA help so many people? We haven't found a pill that works as well. We haven't found any other techniques that work as well. No technology. Why does AA continue to work so well? And uh, we don't understand why completely, but the crucial factor seems to be these small groups of people, like-minded friends who support and encourage and are honest with one another. Sharing problems with a supportive group of friends helps you overcome those problems. The AA is reflecting a truth that the Bible has known for years. And so there are these pleas, these commands in the, in the Bible over and over again, these passages, these encouragements, pursue community, work at it. Apparently, you need the reminder. So do I. We need the help, we need the commands, we need the encouragement. We human beings have a terrible tendency to isolate ourselves. For some of us, it just comes naturally. We just don't like people. We're much happier by ourselves. Um, you hear, you've heard sometimes people talk about the desert island, and if you were alone on desert island, what, what books would you take with you, or what recordings would you take with you, or what, what TV shows would you want to have? I heard one woman say about her husband, if he was alone on a desert island, it would take him eight months to notice. <laughs> so some of us, we just like that. Others of us, though, we've been hurt in community. Community is costly. It can be painful, traumatic, dangerous. Relationships are messy. Remember what C.S. Lewis said? Uh, To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of hell, of love, is hell. So the Bible calls us to community relentlessly, over and over again. We talk about it a fair amount at our church. We have a covenant that we read every now and then that describes how we try to interact with one another. Here's what the teacher in Ecclesiastes adds to the discussion. He makes a case here as to why we pursue community. To put it in language that uh, is more suited for our time and day, why do followers of Jesus pursue community? And he's going to give us three reasons. Receive them from me this morning as, as an encouragement, a reminder to keep at this, to keep trying to find and cultivate friendships. Here are three reasons why, and then he's going to give us a little bit of a 
clar- a clarification too. So those three reasons why and then one um, exception, one caveat, one clarification. Let's talk about them. Reason number one, why should followers of Jesus pursue community? Because community makes hard work meaningful. Community makes hard work meaningful. Now, it should surprise you I use the word meaningful because all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes, his favorite word is meaningless. Meaningless. That's what he argues. When you look at life under the sun, as we do, life without God, uh, uh, most of us, most of what we do, uh, most of life under the sun doesn't bear the weight of the attention that we give it. It's meaningless. Uh, When I was in elementary school, we were invited to participate in a contest. Maybe some of you did the same thing involving balsam wood. If you wanted to sign up, you could. A teacher would, would give you balsam wood, long strips of it. They were about the thickness of a straw. And, and you would get this balsam wood. You're supposed to take it home and build a tower. Uh, it had to be a certain height and couldn't, couldn't be a certain width. You're supposed to use the balsam wood and glue to make a tower. And then on the appointed day, bring the tower in. And the judges would take and put weights on your tower. And the tower that could hold the most weight was the winning tower. I don't know if anybody did that when they were in elementary school. The book of Ecclesiastes says that most of life, most of the life that we human beings build for ourselves can't bear the weight of the expectations and hopes and dreams that we put on it. And because of that, in that sense, most of life is meaningless. It's vaporous. It's futile. But here's one way to push back. Look at the text here in, in uh, Ecclesiastes 4, 8. The, the teacher wants you to think about a man who is alone. He has neither son nor brother. Closest human male relationships. If the text says there was a woman all alone, it would say she had neither uh, sister nor daughter. This man is alone and yet he works really hard. There was no end to his toil. Now, Ecclesiastes is honest about work. Ecclesiastes knows what Genesis says about work, that that God made us as human beings to be working people. Work is honorable. It's good. We're, We're meant to work and keep the world that God has made, even in this broken world as as we know it. And and Ecclesiastes will tell us, we've seen it already, we'll look at it several more times, that we're to receive the benefits of work that God has given as joy, this daily joy in accomplishment and work. And yet, here's a guy who is toiling away, but he has no joy in it at all, no contentment in it at all, no satisfaction. And why? Because he has no one to share it with. He says, for whom am I toiling? And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? Now, follow me here. One of the ways that work is meaningful is it finds its meaning in, a, in the ability to share the proceeds of it with someone else. This is one of the ways that work produces joy in being able to share the fruit of it with others. This is one of the ways that work finds meaning in this world, the ability to share with others. A teacher wants you to think of a miser. If you want to, you could write in this passage, Ebenezer Scrooge. Or Silas Marner, maybe. Someone who works and works and works and accumulates and accumulates and accumulates, 
they're supposed to be happy because they have a lot of stuff, and stuff is supposed to make you happy, but they're not happy. There's no one to share the fruit of their labor with. And that, he says, is is meaningless. What's the point of building a fortune if you don't share it with anyone? You know, Jesus told a couple parables uh, that that contained the same message. Look at them with me. I I wrote the text down, uh, the text of these parables down in your note sheet. The first one is in Luke chapter 12. Let me read it to you. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter arbiter between you? Now, he's not using the word man there. That's funny. He doesn't say like, Man, he's he's like, Sir, sir, who, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, Ecclesiastes, the teacher says, eat and drink and be merry an awful lot of times. But here's the difference. Verse 20, God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Now, here's a man who's alone. How do we know he's alone? Because God says to him, when you die, who's going to get this? You have no brother. You have no son who's going to benefit from this. And it is meaningless. All your work, it's meaningless. You have no one to share it with. Now, here's another story that Jesus told. This one's a little bit more tricky. It's in Luke 16. It's a great story. Jesus told a lot of stories about money. He must have known something about how money winds its way into the human heart because he told an awful lot of stories about money. Here's this one. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. And the manager said to himself, what am I going to do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, this is a tricky story. The hero of this parable is the business manager. Why is Jesus commending him? He's not commending him for his uh, wastefulness. He's commending him because he's shrewd in how he uses his money. He uses money in this story as a tool to make sure that when he's unemployed, he'll have many friends who welcome him. 
He uses the money over which he has managing authority to invest in future friendships. He's shrewd in that sense. What is money for? Money is for sharing. It's for laying the groundwork for community. Let's not accuse Jesus of being crass here. This man, uh, Jesus is not encouraging you, you to use your money to buy friends. That did not work very well for the prodigal son. Jesus told that story too. But he's encouraging us to use the resources we have to build community. Is that what your resources are for? If you're just amassing them for yourself, what's the point? Uh, you can think of different scenarios that, that the teacher would be uh, uh, pushing back against. It's possible to neglect community for the sake of money. That's possible. Think of the man or the woman who is always at work and never at home. Working, 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 working and has no time for family or friends. That's the plot of 85% of the Hallmark Christmas movies that some of you have already started watching to your great detriment, right? Okay, you can think about that. Or you can imagine someone who uses people to make money. Um, he's a contractor. He always cuts corners. He has a lot of clients, but he has no repeat customers and very few friends. And the teacher commends those Instead, who use their toil in uh, the, the fruit of their toil in building community? Uh, let me give you a small example and then a big example. So, we have, uh, as part of our church, we have a line item in our budget called missionary care. So we budget a certain amount of money that people give over the year, every year to, to, to set it aside to help outreach partners with special needs that they have. Um, I read the newsletters that come from Jim and Helen Lehman. You should read them. They're very encouraging. And Jim and Helen Lehman in New England, uh, they, in their work with international graduate students, host people at their house a lot. Uh, they're constantly talking about the people that come over to their house, groups of 50 or 60 people in their backyard. So um, uh, Jim writes about how Helen is the chief hostess. So a couple weeks ago, I wrote Jim an email, and I said, Helen does all this. Is there anything that she needs at her house that we could help that would be useful for her in hosting these groups. So she thought about it for a few days, and Jim sent me a link to an Amazon page for a coffee carafe. He said, um, one of these or even two would be great. The carafe cost 30 bucks, so I bought two of them from the Missionary Care Fund, and I sent them to the layman's house, $60. Here's the fruit of your faithful giving. So if we divide the $60 out uh, by the, the, the number of giving units in our church, it's about $0.30 cents a piece. So that Helen could inter, uh, host international graduate students and she and Jim could introduce them to the gospel. Helen didn't know it, um, but she could have asked for more and we would have given it to her. Right. We, the, the Missionary Care Fund doesn't have enough money in it to buy her an entire living room, dining room suite of furniture. That, that's true. But she could ask for more, and, and we would have given it. What's wealth for? To put it in terms of Luke 16, it's so that when we enter our eternal dwelling, the life that is to come, we buy coffee carafes so that there are more international graduate students there in heaven to welcome us. 
More international students studying in the United States who hear the good news of Jesus in Boston, Massachusetts, in the layman's backyard. Uh, We buy those coffee carafes so that they can hear the gospel and they're there to welcome us into heaven and worship the Lord Jesus with us. Is that worth your 30 cents? Oh, you bet it is. That's a small example. Here's a large example. We're on the brink of spending quite a bit more than 30 cents per person to expand and renovate this building. So uh, we want to get rid of everything in this building that does not build community and add to the building and space features that can help us do that. So we're under no illusions about this. The Lord Jesus builds the church. The Holy Spirit unites us together. But we want the building to be as much of a use as possible and as much as little of a hindrance as possible in building community. So one example, the classrooms that are immediately down below us. You know what? In the wintertime, they're very cold. In the summertime, they're very hot. It's not very conducive to community. So we're going to fix the HVA system. There's poles that run right down the bill, middle of that, that, this hall down there. Little children bonk their heads. That's not very conducive to community, right? So we want to fix that. Well, think about it like this. Here we are. Two-thirds of us are up here. One-third of us are downstairs. We're meeting at the same time. Uh, they're, they're watching in that camera. Be careful what you do because little eyes are spying on you downstairs. Right? So we want to fix that. That's, that. That solution's a little further down the road. But, but we want this building to do everything that it can to enhance community and do uh, uh, as little damage as it can to the building of community. What is work for? What is work for? The fruit of it builds community. Or in other words, community makes work meaningful. If you have no one to share the fruit of your labor with, it's meaningless. Now, what else does community do? The teacher tells us something else. So the second thing that the teacher tells us about community is that community makes troubles bearable. Community makes troubles bearable. In verse 9, the teacher makes a basic point. He says, two are better than one. The teacher uses that phrase a lot, are better than. When you're reading Ecclesiastes, and actually Proverbs too, but more so even Ecclesiastes, look for that phrase, are better than. What sort of comparison is the teacher making? Two are better than one. I know you've heard this at weddings. This is not about marriage. This is not about romance. It's about friendship. Two are better than one. And here are four arguments he makes as to why. He seems to have business in mind and the traveling that's involved in business in the ancient world. Two are better than one because you get a better return for your labor. You get a better return for your labor. He says that in verse 9. Two are better than one because, second, you get a better recovery from a fall. Think about it. You're wandering around ancient Palestine at night, traveling from one city to another to do business, and it's dark. It's very dark. You can't see pits on the side of the road. Uh, You can't see. There's no street lights. So uh, uh, you need someone to rescue you. Do you you remember Aaron Ralston? You might not recognize the name, but you'll recognize his story when I tell you. In 2003, Aaron Ralston was out hiking by himself. He descended into a canyon in Utah, and as he was climbing up or down, not sure which, out of the canyon, a rock shifted and pinned his arm to the wall. Remember his story? He wrote a book about it. They made a movie about it. The only way he could rescue himself was he cut his arm off. 
to get out of the canyon. I wonder if he still goes hiking alone. You think? One would hope not. Two are better than one because you have better warmth in the cold, he says. Better warmth in the cold. Um, Verse 11 says, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. Now, don't think here about sexual intimacy. Again, this is not chiefly about marriage or romance. In our culture, when we think about two people lying down, that's what we think about sexual intimacy. But in the ancient world, not so. In the desert, it gets very cold at night. Two friends traveling alone, they can huddle together for warmth then you get better security for your danger. Better security for danger. Do you notice how in this passage here, he talks about the alternatives of being alone. You'll be cold, you'll be overpowered, um, you, you will fall and have no one to help you up. And that, then he moves on to three. So, verse 12, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. The cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Not a bride, not a groom, not God. That's not the three strands here. If you read this at your wedding, I will sit there patiently because this is God's word, but I will be silently mocking you in my mind because this is not about marriage. This is not about marriage. This is not about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit either. Um, The logic. One, if there's one alone, that's dangerous. If there's two, that's good. If there's three, it's even better. Passages about community. Notice the teacher's insight into life here. This is inevitable in your working life, in your job. You'll need someone else. You will need someone else. Uh, Some sort of partnership. Even if you have a job where you work alone, you'll need someone else. Someone to repair your equipment or an accountant to help you with your taxes or an editor to sharpen your prose, a janitor to clean your classrooms, your coworkers, I know it, your coworkers drive you crazy sometimes. But they're God's gift to multiply your labors. How thankful I am to God for my coworkers, for Scott and Celia and Ryan and Steve and Carol. Better return. Better return. When the teacher talks about a fall here, he's not just thinking about literal falls. He has in mind inevitable troubles. You're going to experience times and seasons in your life when you will need help. You will have insufficient resources to face the troubles that you are experiencing. Stu Weber's a pastor. He's been a pastor for a long time. He may have retired even by now. Before he was a pastor, he was in the United States Army. He was a ranger. We're a member of the special forces. Um, listen to what he wrote. 1967, he says, we were at war with Vietnam and there I was at the U.S. Army Ranger School at Fort Benning, Georgia. It was brutal. I can still hear the raspy voice of the sergeant. We are here to save your lives. We're going to see to it that you overcome all your natural fears. We're going to show you just how much incredible stress the human mind and body can endure. And when we we are finished with you, you will be the U.S. Army's best. And then before he dismissed the group, uh, Weber says, he gave us our first assignment. We all thought it was going to be like a 10-mile hike with a full pack or or rappelling down a cliff. But this is what the uh, sergeant said. Find yourself a ranger buddy. You will stick together. You will never leave each other. You will encourage each other. And as necessary, you will carry each other. 
It was the army's way of saying, Weber writes, it was the army's way of saying, difficult assignments require a friend. Together is better. The teacher is anticipating what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6. Look what he says. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Or James 5.19, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is why we as a church practice church discipline. We help each other up. Are you helping anybody bear burdens today? Several years ago, Ann Hell and uh, uh, Debbie Nichols were mountain biking. They were mountain biking through the mountains of, Cal- uh, of California. It was a great day. It was a beautiful day. All of a sudden, out of the bushes, onto Ann's back, jumped a 110-pound mountain, uh, mountain lion. Grabbed her by the head, dragged her off her bike. Um, Debbie uh, jumped off her bike uh, and grabbed Ann's legs and started calling for help. And there were other hikers in the area. They came by. Uh, uh, while Debbie held on to her friend Ann's legs and pulled with the mountain lion, the other people threw rocks at the mountain lion to try to get the mountain lion to run away. Eventually he gave up and ran away. Paramedics came. Ann and Debbie both went to the hospital. Debbie was there in the waiting room while her friend was being cared for, shaking, blood on her shirt. And she said to reporters, I was not going to let go. I was not going to let go. The cat had a hold of her face, but I kept telling Anne, I'm never letting go. Do you have a friend who does that? I am not going to let go of you. It's easy to isolate yourselves, brothers and sisters. Sometimes it feels safer. But what are you going to do when you get to the point in your life when you need help? And you will. You will need help. You will have burdens to bear that are too heavy for you to carry alone. You should think today about the long-term consequences of your chosen isolation. Community makes trouble bearable. Now, third here. Community makes society function. Community makes society function. Now we come to verses 13 through 16. Some people think that the teacher has turned topics here and that this is a separate section, a new topic. There are some linguistic matches between this paragraph and what comes before. There's some words that he repeats. And there is this this connection in the fact that he says that the foolish king doesn't know how to heed a warning. That's community right there. This is a challenging paragraph. Your translations vary. Let's focus on what we know here. So again, the teacher wants you to use your imagination. He has already asked you to think about Ebenezer Scrooge. Now he wants you to think about two different people. One, a poor young man who is also wise. And two, a powerful, old, and foolish king. This is the opposite of what we expect because usually, and the Bible teaches this, wisdom, wealth, and age go together. That if you're wise, in time, as you age, you will accumulate for yourself 
resources. Usually wisdom, wealth, and age go together. Um, and usually poverty and youth and foolishness go together. Part of growing into old age is moving from foolishness to wisdom. But this is an odd couple. We have someone who is poor and young but wise and a king who is old and powerful and foolish. How do we know that the king is foolish? text says, he no longer knows how to heed a warning. Language is striking. He no longer knows. He used to know. He used to know how to listen to people and, and heed warnings from others, but he doesn't. And it, the text says he no longer knows how to heed a warning. As if this is knowledge that he had at one point in time, but he's forgotten it. One commentator said that he has unconsciously lost this ability. He doesn't know that he doesn't know how to heed a warning. He's in that much danger. Which is better for society? Which is better for society? It is better for a culture to function with poor and young and wise people than old and powerful and foolish people. I wonder how you are at heeding advice. It's what community is for. Um, you can already imagine the sort of questions, and um, I, I want to ask you right now. You already know what sort of uh, applications I have in mind. Do you have someone in your life who warns you? When's the last time someone told you something that you didn't want to hear, but you listened to it anyway? When's the last time someone changed your mind about something important? Do you know how to heed a warning? There is a transition in this paragraph. It's interesting. Um, he moves from the realm of the personal here to the realm of the political in verses 13 through 16. Ecclesiastes talks a lot about politics. We're going to spend some more time in it as the book unfolds society-wide. A king... Uh, one of the ways that I frequently pray for our presidents is that God would surround them with wise counselors. Our president has various strengths and weaknesses. It is not to his credit that he keeps firing his counselors. does not speak well to his character. does not speak well to his leadership. Does he know how to heed a warning? Twitter would not seem to suggest that he knows how to heed a warning. And no society, no culture is better for it without a king or a leader who can heed a warning. Hmm. wonder if you know how to heed a warning. That's one of the things a community does. It makes society function better. Now, there's something else in this paragraph about the poor but wise youth, and we should unfold it, the old and foolish king. The teacher has been writing about community and its benefits, why two are better than one, why forming friendships is worth the effort. But as he does that, um, he's the teacher. He can't be all positive, right? I mean, he's got to have some negativity in here. This is what he does. He's got a warning. He's got a warning to say, uh, this is the fourth thing I want to, you to see in the text. Something else he wants you to know about community. Community is really good. It's really helpful. But it does not erase meaninglessness completely. Community doesn't erase meaninglessness completely. Let's tell the story that the teacher tells about the poor but wise youth and the old but foolish king. Verse 14 Verse 14 in the Hebrew begins with the word he, 
he may have come from prison to the kingship. Now, who's the he? My translation says the he is the youth. It could be the king, but I think it's the, the youth. I think the NIV is right here. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. He's wise. Here's why wisdom is better, because this young man started out in prison. He started out impoverished, and he made it all the way to the throne. That wisdom is good. <laughs> it's helpful in that regard. This is, this is good. Some scholars were telling a story. Some scholars have spent a long time looking at history, trying to figure out who this person is, if he's telling a real story, or if he's just using his imagination. You know the likeliest candidate, or one of the likeliest candidates for this story? Joseph in the book of Genesis, right? He came from prison to be exalted to the second most powerful person in Egypt. Maybe. I don't think so, though. That's the best guess. Then verse 16 um, tells us that the king, the youth who became king, had a tremendous following. And verse 16 or verse 15 might introduce a third person I'm not sure. So it might be talking about the old but foolish king, then the young man who, through his wisdom, became king, and then the, that king's successor. That, that's possible. Your translation may indicate that. I don't know. My translation just talks about two people, not three. Regardless, the point is the same. Here's the point. So this, this king, this youth who is wise, who becomes king, has a tremendous following, and it's wonderful, and he leads the society well because of his, his wisdom. But then, then eventually, you know what happens? Eventually, a crowd will arise who doesn't know the wise king and doesn't like the wise king. People are fickle. The old king was bad, he was foolish, he had all the power, but none of the wisdom. The new king was wise, that, that's good. But people eventually tire of the new wise king too because fame is fleeting and popularity is fleeting. Even for the wise. Community is good. Community is necessary. Community is meaningful. It's helpful. But community is not everything. Uh, that's why you need to learn to live for something above the sun. Uh, think about it. There is no end of advice in this world that will tell you that, um, and it sounds very wise, and again, it's the theme of 80% of Hallmark Christmas movies. Don't live for fame. Don't live for fortune. Find a family and find friends. And, and if you find family and friends, that will fill your life with meaning. It's true. It's true. It's better than riches. It's better than power, family and friends are. But even family and friends aren't everything because people are fickle. And community doesn't erase all meaninglessness. In fact, you need to learn to live for something that is above the sun. And as followers of Jesus, we have the best combination here. We're ready for this advice. The teacher would come along and he would say to you, find yourself a community of people who themselves are living for something above the sun. Find people who long for a better world, who recognize the meaninglessness of so much of life under the sun. Unite yourself with them and long for that better world together with them. In a sense, that's what we do when we mark the Lord's Supper. We're going to come to the table in just a few minutes. Paul tells us what this is about. 
This is about proclaiming the Lord's death. It's a public proclamation of the Lord's death. It's an announcement. This is truth made visible. The Lord's Supper publicly proclaims that the body of the Lord Jesus was broken for us. It's a public announcement that the blood of Jesus was shed for us. We deserve to have our bodies broken because of our sin by God. We deserve to be crushed by him. We deserve to have our blood shed. That's the due penalty for our sin. It's what our broken, rebellious estate calls for. But he, the Lord Jesus, was broken for us. His blood was shed in our place. And ingesting these elements is is a spiritual marker of, of faith. We consume Christ, not literally, but by faith. We, we depend on him, just like we depend on food and drink for our sustenance. But at this table, we recognize that the true host, the Lord Jesus, is not here, not in a face-to-face sort of way. Paul said that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're after. That's what we long for. This is a reminder of the past, of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. It's a reminder of our present, that we're trusting in what the Lord Jesus has done. And it is a reminder of the fact that we are living for something above the sun. That day when the Lord Jesus will come back and he will serve, will gather around the table and he himself will be the host. Find yourself a people, a community of people who are longing for that day. Receive from them all the benefits the community brings and hope for that great day with them together. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and uh, Lord, um, we confess we have considered this topic that we think about a lot as a church. What it means to be in covenant relationships with one another. We, we come to Sunday school and we join growth groups so that we can meet with one another and seek to encourage one another. We join Bible studies and we sign up for um, WOW and we go to Man U and we, we join committees and teams so that we can participate with one another. Lord, I'm thankful to you for the men and women in our church who are serious and diligent about this. And I pray that you, by your spirit, through your word, would remind them and help them this morning to to continue to work at it. To seek with wisdom, knowing the day of falling is in everybody's future. That a day of trouble for everyone is, is coming Wisely, we seek our community today. Lord, I, I pray for the men and women in our church who, who keenly are feeling this role that they're playing right now. Even this week, they're reaching out and trying to help somebody carry them and bear burdens and encourage them. Pray that you would multiply those efforts in our congregation. Lord, I'm, re- I'm reminded in, in 1 Corinthians of the, of the unbeliever who, who entered a church service for worship and he saw what was happening there and he said, wow, God is in your midst. 
and, and it's the Lord Jesus' desire that people would say of us, wow, you're followers of Jesus. We can tell, I can tell because of your love for one another. Build that in our church. Bring that about for us, Lord. Forgive us for our selfishness. Help us to move past our fears uh, when it comes to isolating ourselves or turning away from one another. Lord, we are distracted by many meaningless things. Thank you for this reminder from the teacher about what is meaningful. Help us, help us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, Amen.